Yo, 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 welcome to the second edition of Talk So Real with Matt Sanzala. This is a live edition recorded at Complete Culture over there on West Anderson Lane in Austin, Texas, and it's some real talk with Lance Scott Walker, the author of the Houston Rap Tapes book. The latest edition is out now under the uh, University of Texas Press banner, man, and it's really great. Lots of great additions to this one including a really long interview with Steve Fournier that's been a long time coming. Man, so much information, so much real talk in this one, and I talk way too much in this live talk, so I'm going to keep this intro short. Get right into it. We did a couple Friday nights ago down there at Complete Culture. Big ups, big thank yous to Bailey Morrison at the University of Texas Press for the editing on this. I usually don't edit or fix or clean up anything because I'm a mess and I know it, but this one, uh, yeah, needed a little help. I don't know why, but um, <clears throat> that mic caught like every breath I took, and somehow she edited out every fat boy breath I took on there and made it sound real good. So thank you, Bailey Morrison. This podcast actually inspired me to join Richard Lord's Boxing Gym to get my ass in shape for real. So there's a lot of big things here, a lot of levels of this shit, this podcast game. Pushermania on all the things, the iTunes, the Stitcher, the SoundCloud. Find me there, tell a friend, tell a friend, and enjoy some real talk with Lance Scott Walker. All right, we're here live at Complete Culture in Austin, Texas for the official Houston Rap Tapes uh, second edition book release. New edition. New edition with uh, Lance Scott Walker. Definitely excited to talk to you about this on a real level because, I mean, I was there when y'all first were conceptualizing this. You were coming up with the ideas, and I remember when Peter Best photographer from Houston first came to me and told me he wanted to do a photo book on Houston rap and asked me to help him you know meet a few people and I saw his Norwegian black metal book and I saw the talent and I was like he's actually is from Houston and I was like yeah man let's make sure we can make this happen because what always drove me crazy throughout the years coming up in Houston was we're so far away from the media we didn't have the internet. We didn't have people coming down. Like the source came down a couple times for Rap a Lot or the Ghetto Boys. Other than that, there wasn't much until Murder Dog and a couple of more independent magazines came out. But what I always would drive me crazy was we had so much talent and so many incredible artists in Houston, but they were getting nothing in the source. They were getting nothing in Double XL and all the major media outlets. Their videos weren't being played anywhere that anyone could see them outside of the South. And the documentation of Houston rap didn't start until the 2000s. Like, straight up. Our records didn't have liner notes. They didn't say the producers. It didn't have any kind of information whatsoever on the inside of almost any CD or record or tape that came out of Houston. You know, the screw tapes dominated everything. They were almost mysterious unless you really knew unless you got a copy with the track list and all that like even a lot of the tapes you would get wouldn't even have a track list you wouldn't know what this shit was until further down the line as this stuff started coming together and for me this is really important i really appreciate what you do with this because with houston rap tapes you got the voice of houston out you got incredible people speaking about the real history and honestly what i liked the best about what you and peter were doing right from the start was you guys could have went and got paul wall slim thug chameleon air bun b and been done with it you know, you could have done what everybody else did. I got so sick. People, I mean, I know some of y'all in here, but I used to be in Houston for many years, and I was kind of the connector, like the unofficial publicist of Houston rap for a long time because nobody had a publicist. Half of them, if they had managers, they were worthless. There was nothing really, there was no way, like we were talking earlier about ESG, one of my favorite rappers. Like, if you need to get a hold of ESG, you had to call me because his phone number changed last week. <laughs> like, all of them. Everybody. So it was really in, that, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s especially, 
it was really hard to uh like these guys didn't even have that in their their mindset like getting an interview right you know what i mean like getting to tell their story that wasn't even in their mindset they were rapping making beats going to waco colleen austin places like this doing what they did and there was really literally no documentation the video footage i mean screw dj screw you see the same pictures of dj screw over and over and over again because screw was in his studio doing what he did and and putting his stuff out there to his people he didn't even sell if you got a screw tape outside of from his hands or his shop you got a bootleg he didn't do any of that so it was like so so many years so much of this went undocumented it's a shame because it's incredible music really dynamic music screw changed the world down here and so i really appreciate you lance scott walker for putting this together and putting out a really great document of uh houston rap history thank you lance round of applause for lance please well I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to deflect it right back to this guy because uh, Matt's the man, and if you know this work, this work is would never have been possible without him. Um, because you know, whenever I came into it, like I grew up in Galveston, I heard Royal Flush, I heard Ghetto Boys, I heard Raheem when I was growing up. I knew a lot of that stuff. Once I moved to Houston, I knew DJ Screw. You know, I'd hear kind of hear Little Troy, hear Little Flip, Trinity Garden Cartel, kind of you know arbitrary connections to different things but when i started i like by and large did not know the material i was writing about music i was writing i was writing a lot writing for the houston chronicle but you know matt could have seen me as like this annoying guy that's coming in and writing about his stuff but instead he was really generous and he connected me to a lot of people and uh and really made a lot of this possible so i thank you for that because uh you know part of it i think is you were sick of the work and uh, i got a lot of the work out of that one of that wave happened in 2005 but that was it was good training for me and it was really important to have that advocate, you know, that could kind of help connect us to you. Because you're right, like, couldn't get in touch with anybody. Right. Kind of still can't. Part of it is, was I was sick of the work, but I was also, I knew it couldn't just be me. I needed you. I needed XXL or Pitchfork or whoever to come down and do the damn story. Like, we need to get it further than just Murder Dog or, you know, that was it. Honestly, when on a on a national or international level, for sure. I mean, we didn't have when the internet started, internet radio started. We had our show, and I really promoted that overseas or whenever I'd be out. You know, that's where I really wanted people to tune in. Like we sometimes it was in the beginning, so there was limited server. You know, like it was a lot. We'd, we'd crash that server all the time at, the, at two in the morning because people in Europe would be listening in the morning, like our people, and that was really important to me because it was not happening. And so it was like, yeah, anybody who came down. And towards the end, I started telling people no because, like I said, they all call it. Like, can you give me Chameleon Air, Mike Jones, Slim Thug? I'm like, no, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, so nobody can get here. you Chameleon Air. <laughs> yeah, but for what I'm saying is like, what I but I appreciate it. I was so happy when and I saw you running around with you know Q Boy and them and and like real dudes from from Houston who were unheralded. Yeah. Completely, not only outside of Houston but outside of their neighborhoods. The South Park Coalition, in my opinion, when I first officially moved to Houston, I started going there in 1980 when I was eight. My father moved there. And 1989, I moved there full on. When I was growing up, people would tell me, oh, this is actually from here. I remember someone saying yeah. to me, oh, you like NWA? And I was like, yeah, I love NWA. He's like, you got to hear the Ghetto Boys. Right when Gripping on Another Level came out. Mm. And I bought a bootleg, like blurry cover tape from the flea market of that. And I went home to Pennsylvania and was like, these girls are from, you know, from Houston. This shit's crazy. It's like NWA. WA, but different mm-hmm. and public enemy on both their first two albums had like long thank you lists and the ghetto boys were thanked on both those records yeah they toured together around that time right yeah mm-hmm. i mean later yeah later they did, on the first yeah. record but 
the ghetto boys like they mentioned all these artists mm -hmm. around and they put the city with them and the ghetto boys were on there and so i was like i was sold like right then you know and but even then like if the ghetto boys didn't have all those controversies like if david geffen didn't refuse to distribute their album mm -hmm. if that shit didn't happen where would be we be right now if we wouldn't have had that huge controversy that became national news and people started to say oh okay there's houston yeah yeah right on the tail of uh what happened with uh two live crew Mm -hmm. Yeah, right after that, right exactly. around the same time. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you guys got started on this, because I know I remember when Peter first called me, and I knew you before that, and I think you co-signed Peter to me too. Mm -hmm. You were like, you need, oh, you yeah. know, this guy's, gonna, you probably gave him my number. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when, how did you guys first get this started? Because I know I feel like he came down on this mission, and you started going with him, and then we're like, oh man, this could be a bigger thing than just a photo book. Yeah, yeah. So I go way back with Peter. I go back with Peter to 1996 when he was first starting out, and he just had like little point-and-shoot camera and he did not consider himself by any stretch consider himself a photographer uh, and I was in a band called Jessica Six mm -hmm. and he was a fan and he would come he would just come to all the shows all the kind of punk and emo shows around Houston uh, and he would take pictures and so there's this long-haired guy in the front taking pictures and I think after one show I was like hey man you you know you ever do anything with those pictures and it was like it hadn't occurred to him before but but he was he was shooting some good photos even then he had his eye um, so we met in 1996 and then um, 2000 by 2004 he was uh, he was living in New York and I was still in Houston and um, he called me and he said hey you know I'm gonna start coming back to Houston take pictures of all the gangster rappers we grew up listening to and he you know lists off Royal Flush, Raheem, Ghetto Boys, stuff that I knew you know and I was like okay great you know I'll, s I'll see more of you. I was writing for the Houston Chronicle then mm -hmm. I was writing about nightlife for them and um, after he'd been working on it for a couple months he came to me and he said you know um, this you know I, I go out at I'm meeting some guys. I take pictures of guys, and as I'm doing these photo shoots, like they tell me these amazing stories, and you know my camera doesn't catch it. It's not, you know, camera's not going to do it. Like you know, you're a writer. You should come aboard with me. You should write this book with me. I was like, that's a bet, you know, because like I love Houston, and I, I have a, an undying love for Houston. And so, and he's talking about doing something that documents Houston, and then I'm working with him, who beyond being my friend, was already very obvious to me and to yourself that like he's a you know very professional and that what he was doing was really special. And uh, so that was like early 2005. He started in 2004, and then like early 2005, he brought me aboard, and uh, we were fortunate that we started then, I think, because, you know, May, June 2005 is when Houston starts really kind of blowing up. Mike Jones, Paul Wall, Slim Thug, you know, everybody we just listed earlier, you know, that whole wave started to happen, and so we were kind of right in front of that. And it's not to say that everybody knew who we were or knew what we were doing, but like you said, the people we were talking to were very much at street level, you know, South Park Coalition. They weren't like the big flashy, you know, collective that everybody was covering, you know. Most people probably can't even name one of their rappers. K. Reno is, the, you know, arguably the, the, mo the most uh, notable out of them. But uh, but we were fortunate that we started with that because, I'm not going to tell Cloud Cat you said that. Cloud Cat is my favorite rapper. <laughs> Cloud Cat is my favorite rapper. <laughs> yeah. And singer. Yeah. And, and, and reggae guy. Yeah, he's everything. Um, but uh, but Kater, you know, Kater yeah, exactly. one no, yeah. Reno is one of my favorite rappers yeah. ever, and probably my favorite person, one of my favorite people in in rap mm -hmm. ever. Yeah, yeah. This is a great dude. Yeah, and uh, which if there's an artist who ever went unheralded for for the bulk of his career, that but still kept going. That's him. K. Reno, he is a testament to the grind. Uh huh. 
Yeah. For real. Yeah, and 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 being prolific, and just cranking out records. Yeah. And okay, well, you know, any any label with any sense would tell you, oh, don't release more than one record every year, every two years, whatever. K. K. Reno goes and drops seven albums in one day. Well, he did last that year. last year. And last now he's year. about to drop four next. Month. Four next month. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also not the best idea in the world, K. Reno. But <laughs> it's all right. I listened to the actual seven records, and that's more rap records than I listened to the whole last year. Yeah, they're great records. Yeah, yeah and they they kind of drop out of the sky, and then they. Yeah. He keeps going on with, with what he does. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In the beginning, I think, you know, one of the things, of course, like, I like, I mean, I went to Norway and stuff, but I, before that, I was interested. I like metal. I like death metal. I like all that. That's part of what made me interested. I like underground music, and I know you do, too. You were with Hands Up Houston. You brought a lot of the best punk and, like, indie bands to Houston. Mm-hmm in a period of time when no one else was doing it like we back when we were kids a lot of shit was coming but there was a dry period and then hands up houston came and filled that gap for sure and i've had the question asked to me since i was you know a, a kid like how'd you get into rap you like rap why do you like rap i'm like i like music yeah i like it across the board and i like different types of shit experimental types of stuff and that's what i liked about early houston the aggressiveness i mean before screw everyone thinks of houston as a slow slowed down we're all slow mm-hmm. we're all this and that but before screw that fucking music was manic Agro. Like the south park coalition the, the rap early rap a lot stuff you know the north the trinity garden cartel on the north side of the, the uh street military oh yeah that's like I also mm-hmm. hate. I'm gonna say before I'm gonna preface this by saying I hate when people compare, say hip hop and punk rock are so much alike because they're actually not on a bigger level. But I do say that sometimes. Those motherfuckers were punk as fuck. No, those guys were like punk as fuck. Like they're in punk. the streets, yeah. releasing uh-huh. their own shit, yeah. selling their own shit, looking ex- looking the way they looked. Yeah. Not like everybody else. And it was incredible. And that's what drew me to, to rap in Houston for sure. Like when I got down there, coming from a city, I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania originally. We didn't have anything notable and a, a big lake. And then, but my dad I've moved, seen you know, it. My dad moved here when I was just a little kid. And I was like, actually, the first time I came to Houston, I was like, you're going to Texas? What is that going to be? I thought I was only going to hear country music. <laughs> Very, I was eight, eight years old. I was like, I'm only going to hear country music. I thought there was like dirt roads. Mm-hmm. And I got off the plane and it was like, oh my God. You know, and like that city is so dynamic and it's some a place that does it still to this day needs I don't wanna say it's just due, but it needs like people like yourself telling these stories of like how incredible it was. Now, my point after rambling about that was a lot of people do say, Houston is the slow down sound, we're laid back and all that, but man, talk about some of those guys you were interviewing. Like Gangster Nip was not laid back. Dopey and the terrorists, they're the terrorists. They were releasing records like I'm I'm not gonna quote their lyrics on this podcast because I know what what we're going through right now. I'm not trying to Blow them hoes up is one of the uh, songs that he's probably thinking of. Yeah. Yes. And he wasn't talking about women. <laughs> he was talking about prejudiced bastards. Yeah, and more. That's what he was talking about. That's the lyric. Pretty much everyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, I do I do see a connection to punk, just to get back to that for a second. I know what you mean when you're saying that, like, you don't agree with the kind of overall definition that hip-hop and punk are the same thing. Certainly not. Um, but uh, but I think in, in the case of those guys, it really was because, yeah. you know, I had, you know, I hip-hop was the first music that I got into when I was in middle school, you know, UTFO, Roxanne Shante, Fat Boys, Curtis Blow, Boogie Boys, that kind of stuff. And then as an extension of that, as an ex- 
extension of Planet Rock, I heard World Destruction, Time Zone, you know, African Bombada and John Lydon. And like, then I was like, okay, wait, wait, what's this stuff? And so then that took me off into punk rock. You know, hip hop was always there. I just wasn't full on into hip hop. So, but by the time I got back to, to meeting all those guys in the South Park Coalition and kind of learning how they did business, it's like, wow, wh- like what's not punk rock about that? Like no, they, exactly. they, they build their own studios, uh, sometimes with street money, sometimes with dirty money, but whatever. They're taking it and they're investing it into stuff. And then they build their own studios. They press up their own records. They do their own artwork. You know, everything's on their own. They go out in the streets and they sell it on their own. That's punk. That's more yeah. punk than most punk bands. No, I agree with that. Yeah. But, I also, but my more reason for saying that is that so much, so quickly hip hop got co-opted by the labels and by the money. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and of course it wasn't in car commercials and on every single fucking thing you see yeah. immediately, but it did become there's a lot of conformity in hip-hop i'm sorry yeah yeah, yeah there's for a sure. lot you know and yeah. in punk now especially now that that's gotten totally co-opted or whatever but really houston houston didn't get co-opted till the mid-2000s yeah for real now it's co-opted as shit but when i feel like when i when i think about what you guys were doing i think about those days because <laughs> we were at the radio show every week with 100 people in the studio sometimes no one's ever heard of no one cared yeah some of them are in this book they're in a book now people that were in like south park and barely ever went to the north side yeah tell me about some of your favorite interviews in here like some of the early ones and some of the, yeah. the more underground people that because you you go deep yeah well, this is I, I think those are some of the most interesting ones you know scarface has been interviewed hundreds of times you know um and he'll say all kinds of shit he'll say all kinds of shit but what i'm saying and, and willie d for that matter and, and anybody of note that you can you can you know think of from from uh, houston but you know what about DJ Gold, mm-hmm. you know, who was really close to Screw, or, um, or you know, um, or Wood from mm-hmm. the Screwed Up Click, you know, that, I always talk about that one, because I think that's such an important interview, you know, Wood talks about um, how his mother became addicted to crack when he was 11, 12 years old, you know, he becomes a crack dealer, his dad dies, his house burns down, he ends up kind of co-opting his own house as a crack house, just so he can be the one who runs it, you know, when he's like 14 years old, and he talks about his whole lifelong battle to bring his mother back from that point, you know, and and how it really took him, you know, a couple decades. And he's like, you know, now, like, she doesn't do drugs anymore. She might drink a beer, smoke a cigarette every once in a while. But for the most part, I got her out of that. And he talks about that whole that whole battle. And he says, you know, you can't, um, you know, I don't, I don't care what it is. You know, you can't wash away what, what drugs does to people. You know, he says, she's, she's not my same mom. But, you know, but she's 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 here. She's alive. And, and she's part of my life. And, you know, I just thought that was so important because, you know, gangster rap, by and large, at least the narrative of gangster rap is largely a product of the crack era and, and what happened to neighborhoods that the crack was really loose in and the conditions that it produced. You know, the narrative that comes out of that is gangster rap. So I thought it was a really important story coming from him to talk about that, you know, in the book and to, and to share, like, well, here's a personal story of how this affected my life. You know, and he's far past it now. You know, he's got his own thing going on. He's a barber now. He's released a bunch of records. He's healthy, you know. So he's out of that situation. But it was to the point where, like, I tell people this, like, I had to call him. Like, before we published, when I was doing the final manuscript for Houston Rap, like, I called him. I was like, hey, um, you know, I kind of want to run this past you. Like, what we got in the book here, it's really intense. And you're talking about really, really important, you know, uh, family stuff. And you're talking about your mother. And you name the funeral home that your family had, you know, forever and that closed down as a product of all this. Like, you know, I could drop that pronoun out. You know, you okay with this going in the book? He's like, 
put it in there, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I thank him for. I saw him last week in Houston, and I thanked him for that. And I think I probably thank him every time I see him, and I always tell him how important that is, and how, how, you know, what a huge part of the book that was for him to open up about that, um, kind of unprompted. You know, I think we had a little bit of small talk before that, and then he just kind of goes into it, and I'm like, okay, well, let's go here together. You know, I'd heard enough stories by that point. I talked to enough people who started dealing crack when they were 13 years old. You know, that seems like a pretty standard age. That a lot of people told me so. It's something that both like people can relate to if they had something like that going on in their lives, if they had any kind of connection to any to crack cocaine that was, you know, troubling their family or, or causing some trauma in their family, but also like for people who just have no idea and, and think it's funny or think it's kind of a joke or, oh, it's crack, you know, only crazy people do crack. No, very normal people did crack, especially in the beginning because it, nobody took it that seriously. Nobody thought it was that big of a deal, you know, and it wasn't really until, you know, everybody was chasing that, that early crack high where you, you'd have just the pure cocaine and, you know, they never found it again because people kept cutting it and it just became a so it's kind of a long story it's an american story unfortunately you know and um a story of where we've been the past three decades you know it'll take us forever to come back from that and um and so his story was a really important part of of kind of you know illustrating that for some people well i don't know who came up with the actual term gangster rap but i'm going to assume it that was something that came up from uh, some i'm not going to say marketing meetings and things i don't know but i think it was jay prince that came up with the term reality rap Oh, yeah. He said, don't call this shit gangster rap. It's reality. These rappers are talking about their actual reality. So you yeah. talk about that story. Wood probably rapped about that. He talked about that he was very reality-based. Yeah. And that's what was really cool about... That's what I liked about rap music, the real stories. And as it got further on after the screw tapes and things like that, I mean, the, it was reality that Fat Pat and those guys were riding around in these cars and they mm-hmm. were doing these things and they were players and they were this and that. That's true. But then... That stuff, and we talk about co-opted stuff. I mean, that stuff got so co-opted and so done into the dirt or whatever. But yeah. my favorite music has always been, you know, like Willie D. I love Scarface. I think he's, I have him in number one pretty much or whatever. But like somebody like Willie D. who was just so in your face, like he represented exactly where he was from. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of shit that I like and I've always liked. Norwegian death metal. Like that's what came out of those crazy places. where I they can't really tell the what they're talking about in the songs here. though. I'm not talking about what they're talking about. I don't right. think the shit they, you know, that shit comes from being in a very dark place. Uh huh. Yep. You know, and this stuff in Houston came from being in South Park, being in these yeah. neighborhoods, being in Fifth Ward, being in, you know, Greenspoint and all this. You know, did you, back then, did you face any adversity making this book? Like when you went to go talk to people, or was there any? Because I know a lot of Houston people are actually quite open. Uh huh. They'll talk to you. They don't, they yeah. Don't yeah. Did you face any adversity when you started? Uh, Gangsta Nip. Well, yeah. that doesn't count. Gangster Nip's going to try to fight count. you no matter what. <laughs> Gangster Nip tried to steal weed from me once. I had to snatch it back from him. <laughs> Anyways, but go ahead. T- tell me what Gangster Nip did to you. I'd like, <laughs> and what he did to Peter. <laughs> tell us everything. It was me and Peter. You were the guy. Uh, okay, it was, yeah. uh, no, he didn't He didn't try to steal my weed. Um, but uh, I would have let him. Uh, Gangsta Nip, for anybody who doesn't know, is, is the, the originator of the horrorcore genre, and he was a, he's part of the South Park Coalition, but he was also a signee to rap a lot in uh, 1992, I think. Well, I don't know if when he signed, Maybe but earlier. his record yeah his record came out in 91, 92. And so he sort of brought the South Park Coalition with him in a lot of ways. You know, they were very much an underground thing, and so people kind of discovered them through Gangsta Nip, because several of them were on his, his album. Mm-hmm. And uh, But anyway, he's a very notorious character in Houston, and I knew a little bit of that, but not much. And so we were at Dopey's house, Dopey also from the 
from the terrorists and from the South Park Coalition. We were at his house, and he says, um, hey, you know, you know, do y'all want to go meet Gangsta Nip? And uh, Peter's like, yeah, you know. Peter always said, yeah, I want to go. And same with me, you know, I want to meet everybody. Oh yeah. Um, and so Nip is an originator. He's an originator, yeah. Um, and he's fucking terrifying. And so we go. So we get in. Do- we get in. I think. Dopey's car with uh, Dopey's two white girlfriends and me and Peter with cameras and I've got glasses and a tape recorder with me and we pull up to this house in South Park and Dope is like okay y'all y'all hold on okay just give me a minute and so <laughs> and he goes as he goes over and he knocks on the door and the door is sideways so if you're in the front of the house lo- looking right here you can't see into the you know you can't see what's going on he knocks on the door and I see him just explaining something to somebody and he's standing there he's kind of and then I see this head like come around the corner and look look at us and he's just like you know just grimacing looking at us like what the fuck is that and then you could see you know he just looks back at dopey and the head kind of just disappears again and dope still explaining something and then finally like nip comes walking out of the house just like shaking his head and staring at the ground he's wearing um some long basketball shorts and that are houston oilers color and a houston oilers jersey and a hat on backwards, and I can't remember. No, he had a do rag on his head. And he comes out, and he walks walks through the yard up to the car where we were standing. And and um, and uh, dope is like, yeah, this is this where I want you to meet. This is uh, Peter. And so gangster nip is kind of like, yeah. And he's just looking at the ground. He doesn't look up. He's like, yeah, what's up? And Peter's like, well, you know, we're because uh, we got real good at explaining ourselves, right? And he's like, well, you know, we're making a book, and uh, you know, we want to feature you in the book and interview you and take your picture and everything. And and uh, Whatever it was, it just went right over Nip's head. He just wasn't feeling it at all. And so he's just kind of standing there, kind of listening to us like he's listening. And he pulls his shirt up to wipe his face. And on these basketball shorts that I'm talking about, there's this gun that like almost goes down to his knee, and it's hanging off, and he wants us he wants us, he wants us, us to see it. And it's kind of like falling off of his shorts, and he wipes his face, and he's just like, puts it down. He's like, yeah, not not today. I was like, no, 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 not not today. That's not, we were, not, not today. Uh, we were thinking we could come back, like, any time, maybe, you know, come years or, or something <laughs> and uh, so then you know and then Dopey at this point is apologizing to him yeah you know I'm sorry I should have called you first and I was like thinking yeah you probably should fucking call him first and um, so we just kind of slink back into the car and drive away something happened within the next several months to a year to where he finally picked up one of Peter's calls not when I was around and uh, and he decides you know okay yeah I'll do a photo shoot with you and so then Peter goes out and takes pictures of him Peter's super easy to work with and he's super direct and he he gets really amazing stuff out of people because he knows how to talk to him and he knows how to he knows what he's looking at and he's already figured out who he's working with you know okay well I'm getting a kind of a sense of this person they're really flamboyant or they're really shy and I need to work with them in that way and uh, so he was really good at it and so after that like Gangster Nib was like yo Peter what's up you know he's super excited to see Peter and and I ended up talking to him on the phone a couple times I never got a good solid long interview out of him that, that would have been good for the book but, but yeah that was an early early incident um, that, that that we went to nobody ever flashed a gun at us again after that but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Gangster Nip Gangster flashes Nip. a gun at you what else do you need Gangster Nip I think second album was him holding a gun over Mike Dean's face was it Mike Dean's face that's Mike yeah. Dean yeah yeah straight up Mike yeah. Dean when you were uh going around Houston early on did you you knew the music you knew some of it but you had to have some real eye-opening moments like go if you're not from deep in the south side going to those spots you don't you probably you probably were not totally ready for everything you saw I mean what some tell me about like some of your early I mean I know Q-Boy was taking you into the clubs uh-huh. and into like directly into some of that shit yeah. early on yeah tell me about how you felt when you know because you came from i mean when we used to, that thing i try to tell people how old are you 
45. Yeah, I'm 46. So uh -huh. same era. When we lived in Houston, if you wanted to go to a show, downtown was a ghost town. Yeah. The whole center. Midtown was Fourth Ward. Fourth Ward was crazy as shit. Fourth Ward is where you went for, like, heroin. Mm -hmm. Seriously. And not me. Not Probably not Lance either, I hope. Probably not. But, uh... But it was fucked up, man. It uh -huh. was crazy. And then, you know, a lot of that shit has changed over the last, say, 20 years or yeah. so. Maybe. Yeah. When we were young, if you wanted to go to a rock show, a rap show, or whatever, you're going north or south or east of downtown, which now is, like, hip and shit, but it used to be Very dried-up neighborhood at that point, yeah. <laughs> it used to be, like, yeah. so, like, pit bulls just in the street while you were trying to go to the show and shit. Now everything's, like, kind of centralized and everything. Yeah. But, I, I, I mean, I try to explain to people, like, Houston has changed a lot over that time. And you come from that punk rock stuff, so you had to have gone to the Axiom. Yeah. Which was, but now there's condos. Yeah. But back then, that was where the pit bulls were running around. Yeah. Or go to the bad, I saw you put a picture of the, the unicorn. unicorn. Yeah. Which you had, that was 30 minutes north, uh -huh. practically, from yep. the center. Like, we had to travel like that. Now everything's more central and everything's all cool in Houston or whatever. But coming up, no matter what, if you were into any kind of, like, cool art, music culture that shit was not center city you no. had to travel for that you had shit. to travel yeah and so yeah. you were in some shit i was in some shit yeah you know the the thing honestly that freaked me out the most you mentioned pit bulls it was pit bulls yeah that's no, what freaked accident? me out the most no no i'm saying whenever we started working on the books oh, and yeah, we yeah. go around guys that have the meanest fucking dogs you could possibly imagine and they come <laughs> oh no no he's cool don't worry about it i was like he's not cool he's totally not cool maybe he's cool with you but he's totally not cool i can see it like you know when a dog is about to trip on you and you're like no that dog stuff's not cool for that dog right now like that was every dog that we ran into none of them ever came at me or anything like that but th that would, would freak me out and then there's a rapper from Houston from Street Military KB the Kidnapper used to bring around a boa constrictor yeah, on his shoulder and would just be talking to you and the shit would be like kind of kind of in your face and <laughs> so it wasn't the people though it was sometimes the situations but the people I, I always thought were amazing I always thought they were just generally warm mm-hmm and uh, genuinely that's Houston, warm. Though. That's Houston. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Houston. Houston. Yeah. Straight up. I traveled all over, like, I traveled to hoods all over the country from Pittsburgh to Honolulu, literally from Mur Murder Dog. I did all the, like, the local scene reports and stuff, and I went to, like, there's no place like Houston. Nothing as far as, like, the warmth and the just goodness of that. And I don't know if that's, I think it's a southern hospitality thing to an extent, but shit, it's not like that. Like, there's something about Houston that, like, is just it's houston man it's like a one it's a totally un and the people don't know and now when you see like people talk shit about drake and all this doing all this houston stuff or whatever like man he came down there and got a warm welcome just like everybody else any yeah. artist in this business they loved coming to houston from anywhere because it was where you were just welcomed it yeah was a whole yeah. different vibe I and mean, it was fucking crazy in the clubs things would happen but for the most part if you got down with the people you were down you, you made friends for life yeah yeah the clubs yeah. the clubs were always kind of they were it was always hit or miss mm -hmm. you know you never really knew but w what we started putting into practice like especially when peter and i would show up together like in houston the the strip clubs cross promote with the the big hip-hop clubs so a lot of times the hip-hop club will get out all the clubs empty out two o'clock in the morning strip clubs just stay open all night so rappers in houston sometimes will perform at strip clubs they'll come do you know just they'll just come hang out they'll do kind of a it's not an in-store in in club and uh so those were a little crazy because it was like you know they're always kind of on the edge anyway so like there was there was one like one time i could remember in particular like and one thing that we started putting into practice like we showed up and big Tho was the promoter we went to blue flame in south park and uh we go in and like the, the record like practically skips you know the whole place is just kind of like 
What the fuck is that? And I and a, a big yeah, a big so, so, I'm son of a cop, look like a cop. So it's so it's all downhill from there. I don't think you had the mustache quite like that. Though. I did not. No, no, no. I had the beard because yeah. yeah, yeah. But I uh, but I but I called the promoter of Big Thaw. I said, hey, hey, come here, come here, come here. He's like, what? What? I said, tell tell the DJ to announce that we're your personal photographers. <laughs> and he goes, okay, okay, okay. And he goes over to the DJ booth. The music's just blaring. Girls are dancing. You know, there's guys sitting in chairs around the place smoking weed, and the, all the music just drops down to nothing. Yo, y'all can fuck with them white boys over there. Them's Big Thaw's personal photographers. Fuck with them. <laughs> he turns the music back up. And everybody's like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And so, you know, then everything was cool. But, um, but you had to get really good at explaining yourself. That was, that was one thing. You know, when we had, like, early drafts of the book, it wasn't even really drafts. It was just a big binder. You know, Peter, you, you saw those. Yeah, I'm sure Peter would print out some of his photos, get good prints of them. And I would cut big sections out of my, you know, narrative sections out of my interviews that I was going to use for it and print those out on a page. Nobody ever read the text. Everybody just flipped through and looked at the, looked at the pictures. But they could get a sense of what we were working on and like, okay, well, this is, this is kind of the direction these guys are coming from. This is the angle, you know. We wanted people to know, like, this is what we're working on. It's real. We're not exploiting you. But we're also not going to candy coat everything, unless candy paint. But, right. you know, we're, we're going to make this, you know, what you give us and, and, uh, and, and to be thoughtful about it and to understand it and to, to be able to explain. If you can't explain what you're doing really simply, mm -hmm. you don't understand it. You know. Yeah, and I like that, and that's what I always liked about Murder Dog and stuff. Like we would keep in like the the uhs and the uh and the slang and yeah. this and that. And reading the uh, with Mike D the interview out of Mike D and Three Two, I was like an outsider reading this motherfucker. <laughs> what the fuck are they well, talking about? You man? have to, but you have to. You know, that's the thing. That's is that part you, of it, though. You that's have to you have to honor the dialect. Yeah, it's real. And 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 figure out in some instances, kind of have to figure out. Well, how do I phonetically? What's he saying? He's not saying everybody. He's saying everybody. Hmm. Okay, well then, how do I spell that? Okay, well, let me bust out some records. Go look through some Odds records. Odd Squad record can tell you that. What's that? Fat enough for everybody. Fat enough for everybody. Odd Devin the Dude's record. first group, Odd Squad. Exactly. And I looked it yeah. up how it was spelled on there, and I cross-referenced a bunch of other, you know, because I got hundreds hundreds of Houston rap records. Hmm. So, the, you know, we don't have liner notes on them, but we did have at Nothing least song yet. titles. So there was yeah. a way to kind of phonetically reproduce that that didn't clean it up. I didn't want to clean up the dialect, but I also didn't want it, I didn't. I wanted to make sure that in print, it it didn't sound dumb. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't dumb. It mm -hmm. was, and, that, and that's one of the things I think is a beautiful thing about, you know, the text being in black and white. It, it brings everybody to the same level. You know, in that sense, in the in the read. You know, there might be an interview that I did behind a club. There's all kinds of noise, and you might not. You know, sometimes I'm in there transcribing. My wife will walk in. She's like, "How can you understand a fucking word? I don't understand a word they're saying." I'm like, you know, I, I just do. I mean, I grew up in Galveston. I grew up around the dialect. All of us down in that part of texas have sort of the same dialect but it's a lot more pronounced mm -hmm. in some of the neighborhoods and with some of the rappers for sure the hardest interview i ever transcribed was big mo oh yeah that was almost impossible he's one of the greats of houston uh -huh. but i interviewed him and when i interviewed him he had a broken foot and i was like how the hell he was walking on crutches i was like how are you walking on crutches with all that way on a it was crazy but he was like yeah, man, I'm talking about we had a bad time, man. we'd be out there in screw house you know what i'm saying and i was like you know, and I was like, and I was like, just listen. I'd like slowed my tape. Uh -huh. I was recording yeah. on tapes. I had to slow mine down and be like, yeah. all right, I got it, I got it. Yeah, yeah. I recognize his voice better when it's slowed down anyway. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly, yeah. man. When, uh, who's, what's your favorite interview? What's the, what was the, the pinnacle? What was the one when you got it? You were like, this is the shit right here. I know it's hard to narrow down to one, but there has to be one that you were like, 
this is the fucking interview. I love Steve Fournier's interview. Yes. I love Steve Fournier. Steve Fournier was a, was a white boy DJ in the early 80s uh, who was bringing hip-hop into the clubs in Houston and fought to get into a lot of places that probably otherwise wouldn't have wouldn't have uh, had it, you know, playing. And uh, he was the origi- he was the founder of the Rhinestone Wrangler, which is a big big club in Houston in the late you know mid to late 80s. It was in a couple different on- incarnations. Um, but but he he in his interview he basically breaks down the whole club business. Mm-hmm. He breaks down the whole the way that the, the club business works and how it worked from his perspective and how he sort of you know moved. He sort of I wouldn't say gamed the system, but certainly worked the system in his in his advantage because you know he's like I want to play hip hop and I only want to play hip hop and he would go in and play in some clubs and they'd let him play two or three hip hop songs and be like no oh, that's too much you know and, and so he, he just arrested. he got arrested yeah yeah and so he was just kind of working his way into a situation where he could just do what he wanted and then finally you know it's like if you're doing what you're doing well enough and you just keep doing it keep doing it somebody's gonna notice and so this Greek businessman came to him and said hey I've got a club it was like an old you know you know uh, Neil Diamond, you know, Glenn Miller kind of, you know, in the round performance space called the Rhinestone Wrangler. I mean, I'm sure it was country acts there, you know, before that. And uh, the guy didn't give a fuck. He's like, I don't care what you do. I just want my money. I don't care what you play. The whole place is yours. We can do, you know, we can change up the inside, whatever you want to do. I just want to be paid at the end of the week. And so that's what happened. And, and Steve Fournier, like, categorically breaks all that stuff down really generously, I think, because it, it, well, it's easy for him now as he's out of the club business. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but he got into a lot of inside baseball, and I thought that was really fascinating to, to hear at least where it was at that time, like mid-'80s. And he started the Rap Pool of America, which bef- way before the Internet, yep. way, way before the Internet, he was the guy that would distribute the 12-inch singles to DJs all over the country. You could, like, subscribe mm-hmm. to his service. He would deal with all the labels, independent and major, get the vinyl, and send boxes and boxes out to DJs all over the country mm-hmm. and and throughout Texas, just hand them to him. And he yeah. was really a pioneer in spreading independent rap and rap music in general. He got arrested, like I said, for playing rap music in the clubs. And in, for me, like I said, in 1989, when my father, you know, when I finally moved down there, I would turn on Magic 102 or... 1590 raps or mm-hmm. whatever was around at the time mostly those at the time and i would hear like ghetto boys friday night the ghetto boys ghetto boys and i like i didn't even have any friends i didn't know anybody hardly down there you know and every it was like three or four weeks into living in houston and i was just like too short blah, 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 all this shit tribe called quest at the fucking palladium on uh-huh. the north side tidwell in uh 45 uh-huh. you know i was like man i was sitting there and i'm like i can't go to that shit i can't just go to like I mean, I didn't know what Fifth Ward, I knew Fifth Ward was Northside, that's Tidwell's, not Fifth Ward, but I was like, I can't just go to, like, some Fifth Ward-ass club, I can't do this shit, I don't know, what am I going to do? And it was, like, three or four weeks later of hearing these commercials over and over again on my way to school or work, and I was like, man, I'm going to see the Ghetto Boys, fuck this shit, I don't <laughs> care, and I was stupid, I wasn't stupid, I didn't know, because they'd be on the radio at 9 o'clock, like, it's crunk up in here, it's going down, it's crazy, and... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing in those clubs started before two. No. The DJs, they danced, and they would take every penny out of your pocket. I mean, I couldn't even drink back then. I was 17. But you, like, they would take every penny out of everyone's pocket, and then the show would start at two, sometimes with the lights on. Yeah, f- like, f- 15 minutes, maybe like five songs yeah, at the most. For sure, and I'll never yeah. forget, like, though, kind of being like, I don't know if I can go here. And then I was like, I'm going, and I went young, just standing there in the back. And then here comes this, like, Steve Fournier, crazy ass white dude in a with a mullet and a tuxedo or some shit. Like, <laughs> what's up, baby? It's going down. Like, going kind of like, who the hell is this, man? What is going on? And I was like, whatever, dude. I started, I started going all the time. I would go to the Axiom, and that just was an end, but like one o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then we'd go up to the, I'd go 
the underground, the Palladium, Boomerang, mm-hmm. and places like that, just so I could see. And half the time they were like radio promo shows, mm-hmm. so they'd come out and do a few songs, and and that would be it. But like, man, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Th- those experiences, those shows, like and the reggae shows that were happening back then, and all that, like, Houston's dynamic. Yeah, it's crazy. And Steve Fournier, like for me, I ha- I have to credit him, like. I've told him to his face. I'm like, dude, you know, I, he's like, I remember you. And I was like, you don't remember me. He's like, yeah, I, I remember. He's like, there was no one else. You know I mean? There was definitely Wiz and Damo mm-hmm. and some people like that. But I was just a dude in the back. And, like, sometimes later, not the first, like, year or so or whatever, but I started bringing my little cassette trying to interview people and trying oh, yeah? to talk to people. Yeah. And still, I would, when I started going to school, there were even kids, like black kids in my school, they'd be like, I'm not going there. And I'd be like, what do you mean? It's a too short or whoever. We mm-hmm. gotta go. Like you're stupid. And <laughs> I would go, and I was maybe a little stupid, but like I didn't really do anything. I was just there. I wanted to see the show. Wanted maybe if I could take a picture, take pictures of them, not like we do now. Uh-huh, and have yeah. a selfie with everybody. But uh, man, those were the days. Well, and, some, and sometimes you if you're in one of those situations is like you go into a, like a really kind of crazy kind of seedy place and then you walk in you're there just there to see the show mm-hmm. everybody there's like well that dude doesn't give a fuck man he's he's all right by me you know no it was i mean it yeah didn't, but that's they don't care. Too. It, didn't, yeah. it didn't really matter it wasn't yeah, it matter. Big a thing but as a little as a kid you don't know that though yeah you, as a you, kid when yeah. i saw steve fournier up there i was like really okay <laughs> 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 i guess this is, I'm, I'm here i'm gonna come all the time mm-hmm. you know and that was really uh my foray into that and i'm glad you put him in there because he is a person who above and beyond he was writing about houston like a, he's the source in the first few years had a section that was just regional it talked about different cities and he was the one that had the little one or two paragraphs on houston mm-hmm. every issue yeah and he was writing about psk 13 and k reno and and those sort of artists which was to me that was like the first page I would try to find when I first discovered the source. Yeah. You know, to see what was going on in these different cities. South Park Coalition and K Reno, man, tell me about I think did he kinda helped you a lot too, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Like taking you around. I mean, his cosign is gold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He you connected know? us to a lot of people. Tell me about when you first met him and started talking to him. Were you ready for the knowledge he was gonna drop on you? Uh no. No, I wasn't. Um but I was surprised at uh, I met him at just the right time because yeah. because I'd done just enough work to where I was I'd thrown my cast net out you know what I mean mm-hmm. like I I was I was just listening to so much music and trying to learn as much as I could and I'd met a bunch of people at that point um, so I met him pretty early but I didn't actually get to sit down with him until um, I remember that actually when I met him well I remember when you met him but I remember when you you were telling me you still hadn't interviewed him yeah yeah and then I finally I finally he, he said okay you guys can come over to my apartment and so we go over he lives in this tiny little apartment in third ward and we go in and he's like okay um, I hope you all don't mind the Rockets game is on and so he sits on his couch and I sit there and I interview him through the entire Houston Rockets game he never takes his eyes off the television set he's just watching the game the whole time even when the commercials came on he would just still kind of maybe stare above the television set but I couldn't believe like how deep it was me and Peter, by the way, mm-hmm. that were both interviewing yeah. him. We were both throwing questions at him. And um, I just couldn't believe how uh, how condensed he was able to make his thoughts, you know. And and, and and I say that to mean that, like, everything he said was super rich. Super concise. Super concise and, and super, yeah. super rich. And it was like, you know, whereas any of us can just kind of run off and expound on something, you know, he would sort of carefully choose his words like a writer does. 
and 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 kind of just slowly crank out like just amazing um, answers to our questions. Mm -hmm. Amazing to us, maybe not amazing to him, but uh, but you know we just went all over the place. So we, that that interview with him in the book is actually a product of three different interviews, mm -hmm. and uh, one of them I did for uh, one of them we did through email. And so I kind of just put the, all three of them together. And the other one I did for Vice, for, for okay. Screwed in Houston. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty early on, too, when we involved those guys in that. And so that was nice to be able to, to, to get those guys involved in something that gave them a little bit of visibility because they were sort of the stars of that, mm -hmm. really. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that was another thing that was important. When these things were starting to happen, those guys could have come down and done the exact same thing everyone else did. Yeah. Those four or five artists from the Swisher House mm -hmm. who I love. But – they went deeper and that was really important yeah, to me yeah. at that time because it got real annoying and to this day i'm like just you know i, I want to talk about blackie or somebody you know or some yeah. different ass shit because i don't want to yeah. you know, talk about just the main thing now on the, the other side of that did anyone talk about the fact that honestly that whole that era kind of fucking ruined houston rap music wise in a sense because we had our own thing going for a long time mm -hmm. i know that there people aren't selling records and cds like they used to but these hustlers in hustletown houston were really making their own way and as soon as they saw that whole mike jones and that whole wave of, of uh, major label stuff happen i'm sorry it stopped well the, yeah, the new generation that's yeah. an internet thing or whatever it's yeah. a different thing right but they don't know the same hustle that the guys that you talked there's guys that that no one in this room or some half the people in this room never heard of but actually made some money. Yeah. They yeah. actually survived and fed their families off yeah. their music regionally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there were a number of things that happened right at that same time. You know, Southwest Wholesale was a, was a P and D production distribution uh, service in Houston that would like, you know, people would bring them, okay, here's my, here's my music, here's my artwork. And then they would take it and they'd, package they'd make the packages and they would distribute it and then those artists would come by southwest once a month and pick up like five six seven eight grand you know they or were more. or more yeah South they Park, were, Mexican and all those guys. exactly they were making lots and lots of money because it was a distribution point where all the shops knew to buy from southwest and so it was it was lots of different independent labels not all of them but lots and lots of different independent labels that either had that pnd deal with them or like swisher house where they would just give them their own product um, but it was a, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a center point for a lot of people. And, and so a lot of people got, you know, stores got their music that way, that sort of thing. And Southwest crashed in early 2003. So if we look at that and then we look at, you know, the bottom kind of dropping out of physical sales right around that same time. And then MySpace takes over and which, you know, MySpace looks like somebody's punched its teeth out now, but it used to be a very functioning website around that time. And the player, the media player on there was a fantastic media player. And so, you know, you, you that's where people put their music up because it's like, okay, well, I'm put it on MySpace because everybody will be able to hear it. Well, mm -hmm. um, there was no band camp or anything like that then, you know, so a lot of people were shifting what they were doing to the, the more kind of digital internet based model. They kind of have to shake, okay, well, now I'm going to go to CD Baby and get my stuff done, and I'm going to get it online. I'll get it on iTunes and, and that sort of thing. So I think there were a lot of things that played into that. Certainly that was certainly part of it because then it gave everybody just kind of just flash look at Houston right. and what was going on, and there was like five or six people that they heard about, you know. But Right, but that whole the street hustle, happen. the mm -hmm. street hustle, we were talking, I was talking with a friend here earlier about that, how that shit still exists. All this Internet stuff is cool, but yeah. you still have to touch the people. Yeah. And that's what Houston did. Like, we have our own world here. Right now, Texas has four of the top. Austin's number 11. So Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio are in the top 11 biggest cities in America. Add Fort Worth and El Paso to that, we have six of the top 20. 
we have our own world here. Like yeah. we, and back then that's what was really happening, man. That's how these guys like K Reno and them didn't need New York. Mm-mm. They weren't, they might not have been millionaires, but they were definitely middle-class. They were paying definitely the, paying the bills. Them, you know, yeah. Making money and living. If you're, if you're making just music and you're paying your bills, that's big. No, that's, that's really huge. Big. And I don't see that as much these right. days, which, which kind of kills me because hustle town was amazing in mm-hmm. those days. Houston was just like, to see that sort of thing right out the trunk. I mean, it happened in Oakland. It happened in a lot of other cities too, but really Houston revolution that, and back in those days, Oakland and the Bay area artists, there was a huge crossover. Like that's why eight ball and MJG from, from uh, Memphis came down Mm -hmm. with Swab house. That's why like people were like, Houston is it. And if you weren't in that world, that very small rap world of that time, you had no idea. You might not know it existed at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. But they made money. They made money. Just doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love. And I love reading the interviews in this book talking about that history and talking about that real independent grind, which every young artist should read this book to see what their you know, their elders did. And it's still, to me, I, I tell young artists all the time, it's the same thing. Like, you can blow up on SoundCloud. If mm-hmm. you don't have all the fucking artists who made it from the Internet had someone behind the curtain. There's 100% for sure. I don't care if anybody wants to argue that. All of them. There was someone behind the curtain. There was some kind of something behind it that pushed right. it to that next mm-hmm. level. As an independent artist, you still have to touch the people. I think Dallas, for especially Swisher House and some of the artists that came from the screw world and all that, like I think between like Austin and Dallas, they made more coming off of I-35 than they did just in Houston. Mm-hmm. For real. Yeah. Because like, this, was, this was like their own little country. Yeah. For real. And it's was such a dynamic time and i'm really excited that uh the book's back out and it's with the texas publisher university of texas press thank you very much for doing this and uh tell me about how about zero zero was notoriously difficult for years as far as even just getting interviews and getting him to talk about things but you got a pretty thorough talking with him you tell me a little bit because is he is zero i mean outside of the mainstream zero's number one Mm -hmm. in texas for sure yeah hands down the biggest Rapper makes them from gets Houston, the, gets the biggest, Texas. gets the most money. Of any but rapper, not just, I mean, but I mean, but headlines, like in the headlines street, like over the, the ghetto kids, boys. The kids are entranced by his. Yeah. Ass. I mean, that dude yeah. is, but he's not big in Wisconsin, no, New York, yeah. L.A., none of that. I Man, he's that motherfucker is the king. Yeah, down here. Tell me a little bit about your interactions with him because I see you've got him on the cover of the new edition. Yeah, yeah, that was that was great how that worked out. Um, the interview with Zero, uh, we'd been trying to connect. I saw him in person here and there, you know, and and. Um, just never in a situation where I could do an interview. You know when you have a situation where you can do an interview and where you don't. And every time I was around zero, like like you said, he's the king. People just flock around him, so it's really difficult. So we met with him after a show. They played a show in Midtown. I think it was one of those Houston Press shows. Yeah, Yeah. and he played and he headlined and... um, and we, we met with him right beforehand. He said, yeah, wait, wait till the show's over and he come with me. Mm-hmm. And so we went with him to his house and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll be back. And he runs upstairs. He comes back down. He's got a girl with him. And he's like, okay, so, um, Peter, you know, it, so somehow it works out that I'm going to go in zero's car. So I go over to his car with him. I get in the front. Um, I got the camera cause I'm going to interview him. And, um, then we get in the car and he starts smoking weed and blasts the music. Like, so loud, there's no way I'm going to interview him. And then we go, like, 100 miles an hour on the freeway all the way over to the other side of town and park in front of a strip club. 
I was like, okay, well, maybe we're just going to park out here. And then, nope, doors open. We're going into the strip club. It's like 5 p.m., 6, something like that's early. You know, so there's nothing going on. And we go over there, and he picks a little booth out near the corner, and then we set up the camera. We filmed that interview, too. And, uh, and then we just went for it. And, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to get. You know, I just didn't know what's he like as an interview. Mm-hmm. There, there weren't, like you said, there just really weren't interviews out there. You know, at that point, that's 2011. People had interviewed him at that point, but... Yep. They weren't all over the place. I think I only interviewed him in jail. There you go. Did you go to the, you went to the, yeah. Yeah. For this, probably murder dog, I don't know, but yeah. yeah. Which, which time that he was in jail? I don't know. <laughs> One of them times. Just saying. One of them times. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's an experience. It was an experience. Yeah, it was really an experience. And, um, he, um, and he just opened up and, and, and it's, re- it's really amazing to, to pick his brain because he's um he's a, he's got a very rare quality of being someone who is very contemporaneous in the sense that like like you said like everybody you know everybody's in love with him mm-hmm. like everybody new kids coming up just getting into hip-hop in houston can repeat the words to all of his song you know he'll, he'll come out and just certain songs he'll do is just hold the microphone out to the crowd and they'll rap it back to him you know so uh he's he's got that but he's also uh very deferential to everyone who came before him mm-hmm. and he's got super super mad respect for everyone that came before him and that comes out in the interview when he's talking about some when he's talking about screw and when he's talking about k reno you know the way he talks about them and the stories he tells about them are just real stories it's really not about the hip-hop part and that's you know that's so huge because yeah the book's about hip-hop mm-hmm. it's called houston rap tapes but a lot of the stuff we'll be talking about in the book it's not to say that it doesn't have anything to do with hip-hop, but it's not centered around hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And that conversation with him really wasn't. It was just it was centered around all kinds of stuff that goes on in his life and what he's thinking and, and growing and, and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. So, yeah, flash forward to, to, to March March or April of this year, and there's a mock, we got a mock-up of the book that, uh, that I want to have zero on, and um, I can't reach him. I got no way to, to get in touch with him, so I call Lump. I'm like Lump. Look, you got to get me to Lump. Is a is a guy who in Houston who is a promoter and he's he knows everybody. And he's familiar with everybody. And I was like, you know, can you get me in touch with Zero? I need to get approval on this today because it was like a Friday and they had the cover mocked up and they they wanted to send it out. And um, so then Lump was like, okay, I'll see what I can do. And then like an hour later, my phone rings. Hello? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Zero. I was like, oh hey, hey man. Um, let me explain to you what. And so I just go in and I explain everything. And he goes, all right, all right. I, I already know I'm probably gonna fuck around with it and approve that shit, but uh, why don't you go ahead and email it to me first? I was like, okay, I'll, I'll send it to you. Give me your address, and he gives me his address, and so I emailed it to him. Then my phone rings like two minutes later. Two minutes later, hello, yo, that shit is dope. Like you can cover? You, can, you mean yeah, the cover? Yeah, yeah, you can use that shit. You can use that. I'm good with that. You can use that. I was like, okay, all right, good. Cause you put somebody on the cover, you gotta check with them. You know, big. Did judgment. you tell him the S is backwards? I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a Z, man. Uh, okay, it's a Z. It looks like that's a backwards S. I had to actually explain that yeah. to Beyonce's people because I had to get permission from Beyonce to use her quote in the front, her lyrics in the front, and um, and one of somebody from her management team was like three three ladies that were on the thing. She wrote back. She's like, "Who is that guy on the cover, and what's that symbol he's making with his hands?" I was like, "Oh, his name is Zero, and that's a Z." And she's like, "Okay." Hmm. Because I didn't know for sure. <laughs> I didn't know for sure. No, you know? I mean, it was true. Well, Murder Dog, we used to, we couldn't even have people, we used to give, uh, send tons of magazines to prisons, uh-huh. you know, like for free. And we couldn't even photograph people giving a peace sign because wow. any hand signal, Anything. that sort of thing could be yeah. construed as a gang sign. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to be careful. Man, we've been talking almost an hour here, and I think we should open the floor up a little questions. bit. I mean, yeah. You know, is anybody out here got some questions? 
Jessica Hopper. Oh, there you go. Thank you for this talk. It has been so elucidating. Um, can you talk, you guys have talked a bit about uh, neighborhoods and, um, and it made me wonder, how do you think the geography of the city, the lay of Houston, uh, and how it feels to be in the city has influenced the sound of Houston rap, if it has? How it's influenced the sound? Um, well, you got Certainly, certainly the energy, um, and that's something that we talk about in the books, especially when we talk about the neighborhoods in Houston where rap is from. Um, you know, a lot of the South Side, Third Ward, Fourth Ward, Fifth Ward, and what do those communities have in common? They're primarily black communities, but also they're sort of cut off from the city. They're sort of marginalized from the city, and even the ones, the neighborhoods that are more central have been blasted through with highways. You know, they've planned freeways right through black communities in Houston, right through Fourth Ward. You go through Fourth Ward, the church is cut off from the community. Now the community's gone. They've just gentrified the whole thing. It's completely gone. Fifth Ward, same thing. Highway planned through there in the, in the, in the 60s. I think it was in the 60s. And, uh, yeah, I-10. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the, the city, you know, the, the neighborhoods that we talk about in the book are very much cut off from the city. As far as, so I think that that has something to do with the energy um, of the music because it has something to do with the story of the neighborhood and you know and how the neighborhood relates to the city or should I say how the city even considers the neighborhoods you know do they come in there do they do community work no you know n largely not you know do they come in there and do they police largely not do they come in there and arrest people yeah so you got all kinds of different dynamics that you can talk about energy wise from that sense in that respect but as far as the sound I mean in Houston you gotta drive everywhere it's pretty you know speed limits 80 miles an hour but you don't end up going 20 through lots of parts of the city so I think I know you might be able to comment more on that but you know I mean I think I wouldn't compare it to New York at all because like Brooklyn is so Brooklyn and Manhattan is Manhattan and the Bronx is the Bronx and all that so and I would say there's definitely more similarities between a South Park and a Fifth Ward than like a Brooklyn and Manhattan but they all had their own little flavors they all had their little worlds and like an eye-opening experience for me was in 1994 I lived in New York for about a year and I worked I didn't have a job for part, a big part of that year. It was rough. But then I, this lady gave me a job working with kids and helping them put their resumes together and put together, you know, how to go do a job interview and how to do this. And I was in Bushwick before Bushwick was what it is now. It was a to it was crazy as shit. And I took the bus through Bed-Stuy into Bushwick every day and was working with these kids. And I would talk to them, and it was really obvious, man, that – they barely, barely, not only left Bushwick, but barely left their little block radius. They had the store, they had their bodega, they had their this, they had their that, and that, their school. They lived in that little world. And I was like, I never, for me, as someone who is just an adventure person that wants to see everything, it never even dawned on me that anyone would be like that. Like, I took some kids to the New York Stock Exchange, and when we got off the train, they all, like, the whole class was like, yo, we in Manhattan. Wow. This is like the big buildings and shit. This this got to be Manhattan, right? And I was like, that's crazy, dude. We're in Manhattan. Yeah, you can see it from your fucking front of your house. This is Manhattan. You never came here. It was like three stops, <laughs> literally. And that opened my eyes to a lot of things. Like, if you were, you know, when people talk about the beef between the South Side and the North Side, mm -hmm. that was real for sure. But it also was like that shit. If you weren't in that that specific beef or whatever it didn't cross over like you really didn't go to fifth ward necessarily yeah. you didn't go to the palladium in the underground if you were on the south side you went to 
boomerang and you didn't take a red car up on the north side you didn't take a blue car down to the south side wow unless you wanted to just just didn't do it so they they all had like kind of their own flavor and their own feel but honestly i mean that's been said a million times the music the bass flow a lot of that does come from driving like you can't Mm -hmm. especially even now there's a little bit of public transportation in houston back then it's gotten better if you took the bus in houston back then if you were coming from this, you wanted to go from this point to this point, like from the north to somewhere on the east. You'd get dropped off over here. Well, you get dropped off somewhere downtown, wait right. around, get to somewhere else, and have to go. You know, it was like, uh-huh. it was two, three hours to take a fucking bus yeah. halfway across town, not across town. People lived in their own worlds, and that they built, they came from that. I mean, like for me, I'll admit to who is sister right now, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, when I first, I'd had the same reaction to screw music that everyone did, I think. I was like, this is. I, I was like, this is fucking stupid. What are you all doing, man? <laughs> and I remember Big Mello, rest in peace. I uh, was with him trying to do an interview or something long, in the early, like 92, literally, 93 maybe. And he was like working out and like he was all amped up. And he like put in a screw tape and was like, man, this is a, you know, and he like mellowed out and was all like, this is that shit, man, I'm telling you. And I remember being like, <laughs> what like why why like i smoke weed every day why are you listening to this music slow down but then as you you know i lived like on holly hot which is not deep in the south. it's not this it's like the edge of the south side it's good, yeah, just not the south, the south side, side. But it was, you know yeah so i was around in third ward mostly mm-hmm. as it started creeping into third ward and people were getting more entranced by it and i saw like i always say there were bigger djs and dj screw and there were better djs and dj screw maybe but there's no dj in the world ever in the history of DJing that had a bigger impact on his actual community mm-hmm. than DJ Screw. Very true. No one, like nothing. The best DJs in the world did not do to their like big ass neighborhood yeah. and area what DJ Screw did. And and from that, like to watch it, like cause I was, you know, to be honest, early on, it's like, dude, the biggest tragedy in hip hop is that he didn't see all the shit that he created yeah. that's happened since he's passed 18 years yeah. ago. Yep. It's the biggest tragedy. Keeps in, growing. We have a lot of tragedies in Houston and in hip hop in general. Yeah. But to think about what you know, quote unquote, screwed and top music has mm. become yeah. around the world, and he missed that. Is the it makes me so sad. It makes me crazy. Because yeah. I was there seeing it spread, like coming to when it, it. I mean, it was the most organic. Like it went like block by block by block, and just mm-hmm. kept going to Austin, to Houston, you know, to Dallas, right. to this, to that, to Shreveport. And then it kind of stopped in his life, I think, to an extent. It kind of stopped in this, like, sort of region, region. Mm-hmm. Texas, Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. I was in, living in Amsterdam and Chicago. I had different, you know, I'd be traveling a lot, and I had a party game that I would do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I would, like, jack the fucking, you know, because a lot of times you just have a tape, mixtape or something playing oh, yeah, at yeah. a party. <laughs> I would, like, throw in a screw tape in the middle of, like, the most random thing, <laughs> and everyone would be like, What? What happened? <laughs> like, oh man, half the time it would just get taken down. But I got to see like people, myself included, everyone who first heard it, yeah. like hating on it. And now it's like, man, it is so embedded in this culture. It's such an important part of this culture. It's, it's insane. So legit art form. So to yeah. go back to your question, like, man, before fairly recently, 10, 15 years ago, even to me, it's pretty recently. Houston was an, an island, man. Like, Houston was just this place where we all existed in, like, this weird sort of world. Like, I mm-hmm. noticed that, you know, PSK13 and all those guys were different from Tribe Called Quest or even NWA or yeah. Too Short or whatever. There were similarities in anybody. But, like, 
Houston has always been Houston, a dynamic city that's like there was nobody. They didn't have anything to compare it to. There was nobody yeah. pumping their heads up or anything. We we're just right. they're there. Yeah. And the Ghetto Boys explosion came, I think, before anybody really understood that because they ended up getting that major deal. Yeah. And they were just, you know, with Mind Playing Tricks was just a huge song, and that was it enabled everyone to see that this was possible. This was going to happen. Yeah. But at that time, man, people didn't know shit outside of where they were from exactly yeah. like their neighborhood where i think they were from. i think that trajectory also empowered a lot of people too it because did. rap a lot was an independent label you know started with street money in houston and works well, a worked car lot he had a car lot oh yeah it was a car lot that's right come on it was, it was, it was, don't implicate people it was on a street not him don't implicate him on my podcast <laughs> shit <laughs> <laughs> have you have you read his book no <laughs> <laughs> Somebody locked the doors. All I said was street money, man. It's all I said was yeah. street money. Uh, but it empowered them because you saw an independent label start off that way, and then them getting upstreamed to a major label like mm -hmm. that, and then you know coming back to rap a lot after that. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think that, that when you look at like the period that was going on in the '90s after that, where it became a lot easier to make CDs, it mm -hmm. became a lot less expensive. Some people were getting into digital recording. You know, Ghetto Boys made them believe they could all do that. Exactly, and yeah. NJ Prince. People don't Prince, understand yeah. or know. You know, Baby and them, Master P and them were coming to Jay specifically to find out how to do Like, Jay laid that blueprint, and he shared the game mm -hmm. some. He may have sold it some, too. But he shared with, you know, he laid that blueprint. And the reason why, you know, Bun and Pimp and those guys are on so many early Cash Money and No Limit releases and all that was because those guys came to Houston to learn the game. Yeah, yeah. And, and Bun and Pimp were on a major, pretty major label, not getting paid. And so they were finding other ways to get paid, working with every independent artist starting from the South. And they were another one that gradually, like, the circles would get bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger from the city to the region to the nation to the world. Yeah. We have any other questions for Lance Scott Walker here, author of Houston Rap Tapes. We only have one person who's banned from asking questions. That's Tosin. No, all right, well, no, we got to ask no to home. Tell me a 3-2 story. <laughs> Tosin just asked, tell him a 3-2 story. Oh, wow. You might have better 3-2 stories than me. Mm. My 3-2 story is when I was young, like I said, that dude, when I was 18, 19, before I, you know, I, when the convicts came out, that's when I knew who he was. Uh -huh. When I say, if I went to anything, he was there. I worked, I, my way, my entrance into Houston rap was interning at Sound Art Studio. My teacher was teaching, I, I took an audio engineering class and my teacher was like, you like rap? Jeff Wells. I was like, yeah, he's like, I got this group, the Ghetto Boys, coming in here. I need somebody to kind of watch over the place. Intern. Basically, I interned at the studio the whole time they did We Can't Be Stopped. I didn't do shit. Barely talked to them when I was there. I was like, You kept it. Willie D from breaking that door down. I kept Willie time. D from breaking the door down. That's in the book. I yeah, mean. that's in the book. And uh, <clears throat> my first real Willie D experience. <laughs> and uh, he's one of my great friends now. But back then, I didn't know shit. And 3-2 uh, was there the whole fucking time. 3-2 was out there when Dre recorded The Chronic. 3-2 was at every show, every car show. And the car wash had something going on. Like three two was out. Like three two was at everything. Mm -hmm. Like he was there. Like there are also a lot of people who will argue that three two. For anybody who doesn't know, three two was the rapper who was on the cover of the original Houston rap tapes, and he was murdered mm -hmm. two years ago. And he uh, he was my favorite rapper, Klondike Cat being my mm -hmm. close second. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's how I can separate him. You're right, exactly. Uh huh. Yeah, in different neighborhoods too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, you you ruined. Uh, now I don't know where my story was going. Um, 
guess it doesn't no, matter. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. We'll say three, two, and then you back up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, he went out to work with Death Row Records yeah. with Big Mike in 1992, mm-hmm. somewhere in right that era. Right after the Convicts album. Right after the Convicts album and before Snoop Dogg came out. Yeah. And so there are people, Def Jam Blaster, actually, in the, in the book, argues. He says, three, two, in high school. He did that kind of high talking thing, no, like Snoop. like Snoop does, and he went out and worked with those guys. And when they came back, Death you know Death Row never released the Convicts record; it never happened. But Snoop was doing that. No, Snoop admits he got part of his style from Three mm-hmm. Two. Yeah. Well, he, waited, he waited till he died. He waited till he died. But yeah. He waited till he died. Yeah. But he admits that. I mean, there's yeah. no getting around the yeah. fact for sure that he was there during those sessions. Mm-hmm. And that shit is a direct yeah. result. His Snoop Dogg, the biggest rapper in the world. And sometimes, I hate to say it, but the dude was on drugs, man. Like, he was All on some shit. Oh, my God. And I'd, I'd right. say my argument for that is, like, how would you feel if Angel the dust. richest, biggest rapper in the world basically was doing your fucking style? He'd smoke angel dust What would time. you do? Yeah. I mean, literally, if you were 3-2 hearing Snoop Dogg and seeing the big shit he was doing, what would you do? But that goes back to where we were in Houston. We had rap a lot. We had that. But we didn't Mm -hmm. have marketing machines. We didn't have publicists. We didn't have anybody pushing this shit out on a real level. We were putting That shit was going out, and the people who bought it, bought it because they loved it and they knew it. It wasn't like some average consumer buying that convicts record. Yeah. But I also, I, I would also would argue that that three two was influential at home too, because you know three two precedes most any guys that we talk about in Houston. But if you go back and listen to Fat Pat or Lil Kiki and hear that kind of rhythmic style that those guys have, that's right from no, three two. Three two is yeah. one of the best rappers ever. Yeah, like best rappers. rappers. Yeah, like his styles, his wordplay, his writing, his personality, his, his charisma. Yeah, there was nobody like him, but and then he was his own worst enemy. Yeah. To an extent, and but I mean, but when back in those days, that dude, he was he was the man, and he he worked it. Yeah. He became what he became by being in the place at all times, and he's one of the true greats. Do we have more questions? Other questions? Are you guys getting tired? Somebody's got a We've question. We've been here for a while. What's a what? Um, here, no, we got you. <laughs> the band will lift the band. Okay. So everybody knows about how crack ruined neighborhoods. But I do feel like Fry ruined Houston hip-hop. There's pretty much not a Houston rapper that's never said that they've never smoked Fry. Wet, boat, whatever you want. Carino. Carino, yeah. Carino hasn't done anything, yeah. That's why he's he's so lyrical. But Mm -hmm. for the majority of the time, the people that everybody knows, people have tried at least Fry. I feel like Fry is somewhat of the problem that kind of ruined a lot of Houston hip-hop. Do you agree? Do you have you had stories? Well, I don't. I don't know if I would say overall that it's ruined Houston hip hop, but it definitely ruins lives. I mean, you know, if you you take a hit of Angel Dust hard enough, and you're not gonna be right ever again. Like it stays in your system. You know, when like in, in the movie Friday when he's talking about he's smoking in Debo's pigeon coop, hanging on DJ. Like that's for real. You know, there's people who will be affected by it forever. Three two seemed to pretty. He kind of got through his he day. For a long he maintained time. for a long time. But you know, <laughs> if you've ever been been around anybody who smokes it you know they'll kind of freeze up on you sometimes they'll kind of freak out they'll get real hot they'll take off their clothes you know i've been around well i won't say his name but i've been around somebody as soon as he smokes he's like y'all gotta take me somewhere get some milk i need some milk i was like why he's like because i'm gonna lock up I'll tell you who afterwards, but you know him. <laughs> but he's like, you got to take me to get some milk. And he's like, really? He's like, yeah, drink some milk. He's like, okay, that's good. So I don't understand that shit at all, but I, I know that um, I'm, I'm among the people who's never tried it. You should. I, mean, I, I will not. No. Things that people tell you. Yeah. They tell you about crack, they don't tell you about crack. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I remember hearing about it early on, talking about dipping that shit in formaldehyde, and I, was, I would tell people, Scarface, people like that, I'd say, 
that's what they put in your body when you die. Mm-hmm. You don't do yeah. that now, <laughs> dumbass. Yeah, yeah for anybody who doesn't know, that, that's just a cigarette dipped in formaldehyde. Or a blunt or a joint or whatever, but that shit, I mean, to be honest, <laughs> to be honest, to be, I'm really tired of, it's 2018 and we've got to shut up about the codeine cough syrup and like, how that's part of the culture, it's part of the culture, and Tosin in his shirt, but... That's all right. I pr- I've had many shirts like that in my life, and I've, I've enjoyed day. coating cough syrup in my life, sure, and it's nice. I've tried But it. I've delved in it. But Well, no, it's not the yeah. same thing. Yeah. But that's... Thank God. You don't need fucking fry. You can get all these other things. Yeah. So Fire easy. Yeah. Plenty of I mean, plenty of listen, no, seriously. They're, you know, talk about coating cough syrup. Yeah, I've been in L.A. I've been in New York. I've been in a lot of places where you could get anything you want at any time of night or whatever it's not like houston it's not the same it's like that shit's almost in gumball machines at, at the at the store like it's ridiculous back then now this shit's so fucking expensive let's talk about that <laughs> fuck i haven't tried to buy it in a while anyways you shouldn't you're right but yeah that no, that that is something that does affect when you you talk about fry and all that i look back on some of this shit and all the people we've lost and i'm like man it's rough Certainly, we've lost some of the people in your book. Yeah, yeah. Who are some of the people that you got to talk to before? Uh, well, uh, Big Jerb has passed on. That wasn't Big a product Herb, of, yeah. of that. Uh, MC no, Wicked Cricket passed away. Yep. Um, is Hawk in the book? Did you get Hawk? No, Hawk was 2006 when he passed. So that yeah, was early. No, I met him. Yeah, I got to you meet met him. Back, yeah, and he's but, not. Yeah, uh, but I didn't get to. I didn't get to interview him. Yeah. Damn. And Mo was before that. And Mo was before that too. Yeah, it's yeah. painful. Are there any other questions before we cry? (laughs) (laughs) No, for real, though. It's true, though, man. What's more tragic than the Houston rap story? Yeah. Lots of stories, or maybe worse, but in rap. We friends. Anyways, before we really start all crying, uh, (laughs) do we have any more questions? Yeah? links between uh, Houston's kind of a big sports town obviously and you know a lot of hip-hop has come from that and there's always the sports hip-hop rap ties mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm sure there's tons of stories and things that you guys know but I'm just curious if you guys had any thoughts on that or if anything is reflected in the book uh, around that around sports yeah or just the tie or you know uh, well one thing that I was talking to uh, Slim Thug about in the book is about how in 2004 2005 2006 as those guys were blowing up we had we had the super bowl in houston we had the world series in houston we had the nba all-star game in houston we had the um we had four or five like massive events which one the ozone of course i should have listed that first um but it was it was a big event though it's true Uh, and that was right around that time yeah yeah so um so we had a lot of big events that were happening right around that same time and that was were not happening before that time. They were not happening that before that time. No, no, that stuff was never coming to Houston before that. Last time we had anything like that, I've been since the 80s or something, right? Yeah, maybe the All Star game in 86. 86, yeah, I think that's the last one. That's and so, but a lot of the rappers got kind of pulled along with that. They were doing parties. I was writing for the Houston Chronicle then, so I had access to everything that was going on. You know, we we got information about it, and um, and those guys were doing parties. They were doing. Um, they were doing clubs. They were doing a lot of stuff that was coming in from out of town that had to do with 
the the sporting events so it wasn't just the same as like okay well i'm gonna go do a show at club connections at two o'clock in the morning for 15 minutes that kind of thing it was more like bigger kind of corporate parties and, and just different promoters coming in and, and mixing it up with them and i think that that had something to do with the longevity that their careers have um have experienced because that was i think that that was a point where they made a lot of contacts outside of what was going on just in houston it was right at the same time that those three artists in particular that we were talking about mike jones slim thug paul wall uh, had all been upstream to major labels so they were all major label artists right at that time and um you know i, I mean a lot of those guys you, you see sporting events and those guys are backstage and they know everybody and well, i would say 94 95 Tustin, you know when the rockets yeah. won two years in a row that was a, a yeah. big that was i mean i'm not saying that was the catalyst for it but that was around the time when things were starting to grow mm -hmm. into downtown and into yeah. the middle of the city and and change for yeah. Houston. that for sure i think around that time of, of 94 95 was when a lot of things started growing out or growing in actually into the center more of houston okay well, thanks y'all for coming out any other questions are we good thank you lance scott walker thank you university thank of texas you, press thank you complete culture for hosting this event right here in austin texas i'm really honored to have you here it's so great to catch up and talk have you on the uh, podcast the new podcast is called talk so real with matt Sanzala, by the way if i was a professional i would have said that in the beginning but i've never <laughs> been a professional you're listening to talk so real with matt Sanzala. Um, there you go shit. bam Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to do some drops. All of you have to do drops before we leave, yeah. by the way. Well, we have books for sale, of course. I'm getting the poster, maybe, if I can slide out here. No, I won't steal it, but if I can, I like the poster. But uh, we have books for sale. He's here to sign them. This is your chance. Definitely appreciate everybody coming out. Spread the word. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Houston Rap Tapes is out now. Talk so real with Matt Gonzalez on all the podcast platforms, I think. And uh, Lance, I appreciate you, man. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir.